how do you remove barriers? What barriers need to be removed? What sort of design elements should you or should you not have in a golf course design so that individual disabilities can take advantage of the same thing that folks without disabilities take for granted? Welcome to Golf Sustainability, the podcast dedicated to advancing sustainability of the environment and the game of golf for future generations. Hosted by Golf Sustainability founder, John Fiella. The Golf Sustainability podcast will feature conversations with industry leaders on the environmental and social issues impacting the future of the game. Let's tee off. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to the Golf Sustainability Podcast. As we've talked in the past, golf sustainability has two really critical dimensions. There's environmental sustainability and social sustainability. And today we're going to be addressing one of the most important topics on the social side of things, and that's making the game more accessible to golfers with disabilities. And my guest today is Dave Barton, who's the executive director of the National Alliance for Accessible Golf. Dave's an individual with really a fascinating background and and personal history, and we're going to get to know Dave a little bit and also hear about the great work that he's doing at the National Alliance for Accessible Golf. So Dave, thanks very much for being here with us. Welcome to the Golf Sustainability Podcast. I appreciate it, John. It's great to see you. It's been a a little while since we saw each other personally. I think it was uh, Pinehurst at the first adaptive open. So great to see you again. Yeah, that was that was enjoyable, and that really made an impression on me. And it's nice how the loop's been closed, and here you are today on the Golf Sustainability Podcast. Dave, tell us a little about yourself before we get into the National Alliance. You you really do have a fascinating background. You've done so much in the industry and starting in the Navy. Tell us about yourself, your journey your background and how did things lead up to you now being the executive director of the National Alliance for Accessible Golf? Sure. I did a 22-year Navy career. I think I was having a little too much fun in the frat house in the early days as opposed to class, but it all worked out okay. And when I wrapped up my Navy career as a helicopter pilot, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that, of course, but when it was time to do something different, I really had a passion for the game of golf and I wanted to do something in the golf industry. So I I just pursued my PGA membership and started doing club management up in Northern Virginia. I did that for uh, quite a while. Left the D.C. area in around 2018 to come to work for the National Golf Course Owners Association in a, a range of roles, but was an editor of Golf Business Magazine, which was a, a really unique opportunity for me. And then about 16, 17 months ago, this opportunity presented itself uh, to uh, step over here to the Alliance and dip my foot back into a, a different kind of pool. I've taught adaptive golf for a long time. I did that in the late 2000s with an organization in Maryland, and I've really always aspired to be involved in that space. So this is a really unique opportunity that I'm, that I'm definitely appreciating. That's interesting. So you've got the perspective of being a PGA member, but you've also got the perspective of your time at the at the Owners Association. How have those two experiences informed your point of view on adaptive golf? Yeah, great question. My view of it before was simply as an instructor working with primarily veterans. As a veteran myself, I migrated that way. And after, excuse me, Iraq and Afghanistan, there are unfortunately a lot of veterans coming back with disabilities. So it really ramped up on what was going on. The PGAs created a great program with PGA Hope. 
And going to work for an association after being on the operations side of golf managing properties was definitely an eye-opening experience. I had zero experience in the association world. But when you look at the golf industry and the number of different associations that are contributing in different ways, whether it's the NGCOA for the owners, the PGA of America for the members, the golf professionals around the country, the LPGA as well, Golf Course Superintendents Association, which you're very familiar with on the uh, environmental and uh, maintenance side. There's just so many different organizations out there in their own areas working towards something that's unique to their particular space. But rarely can you get that done if you're not cross-talking and working with the other associations if you really want to make a change. And of course, the USGA is in that as well as a large governing body as well. That's interesting. So you're, as a veteran and having given instruction to vets, you understand the kind of the needs of the golfer with disabilities. You certainly understand issues associated with instruction. And you've got good perspective on kind of the challenges and what it takes for a golf course operator to, to make things happen. Uh, so you're frankly very uniquely qualified to, to be in the role that you're in. Tell us about the Alliance, it, its mission, its current work. Why don't we start there? Sure. We were officially formed in 2001, but there was a lot of work done in the, I'd say, mid to late 90s. The ADA, excuse me, the Americans with Disability Act was signed in 1990, but it really only applied to buildings, but didn't address recreational facilities, golf courses, campgrounds, you name it. These things were not, um, again, addressed by law in the ADA, and the golf industry instantly recognized that as a problem. Uh, regarding how to better inform our community on not only the buildings, but playing golf. And so numerous forums were conducted in the 90s uh, with leading golf associations at that time, and that ultimately led to the formation of the uh, National Alliance. Now, we'll say, too, that academia was also involved in that uh, as well. And so uh, it was quite a unique group of folks that got together and when we began, the, really, the, the mission has remained the same. It's to increase the participation of people with disabilities in the game of golf. And so what does that mean? Uh, we don't run competitions. We don't run programs. Primarily, we are a education, advocacy, and resource development organization. In 2010, uh, thankfully, due to some tremendous support from uh, some of these golf associations, as well as the United States Golf Association, we uh, had a started a modest grant program, which we've continued for many years, and we're working to continue that as we move forward. And so with that, uh, over the years, we've collected and developed information, education, and resources to help advise golf course owners and operators and golf coaches and golfers about all things related to access. How do you remove barriers? What barriers need to be removed? What sort of design elements should you or should you not have in a golf course design so that individual disabilities can take advantage of the same thing that folks without disabilities take for granted? Yeah. So that's, that's a great overview of the mission and some of the current work that you're doing. You, you referenced resources and advocacy. Can you talk a little more about some of the resources you've got in place and what type of advocacy work that you do, Dave? Sure. Resource-wise, we're constantly on the lookout for what kind of material can we provide and or find, develop, make available 
to uh, a, a golf course owner, anybody that can use it. And that can be as simple as here's a checklist for starting a program. Here's a toolkit for owners and operators that gives them a 20,000 foot view of all things ADA. Uh, as you can imagine, the ADA is a very large government instruction. And so we work hard to distill that down into usable bits of information such that owners and operators and folks running programs can get informed a little quicker. We advise golf courses on how to create welcoming and accessible environments, things you can do to market to individuals with disabilities. What should you or should you not say to individuals with disabilities? How do you communicate with an individual that has a hearing or sight impairment or might have an intellectual disability because there's subtle differences with you know, how you approach and work with these individuals? So it's a little bit of everything. And quite honestly, a little bit of everything adds up to there's a lot of information out there that we are working really hard to try to distill down into different kind of more user-friendly pieces of information so that the folks that want to find it can find it more easily. Excellent. Well, one of the, one of the key drivers and an important part of the mission for golf sustainability is really to amplify the efforts of organizations like the National Alliance, because what I have found in numerous industries that I've done sustainability work in previously is that there's this great content. There are these excellent resources that reside in the depths of these organizations, and it's a real challenge to get it out there. So we hope to be able to amplify your, your efforts going forward. What, where are things headed? What, what types of programs or uh, resources or advocacy work do you see uh, doing at the National uh, Alliance going forward? Sure. We'll touch on advocacy briefly first, because you asked me that a moment ago, and I went right to the education piece. Or the, uh, but, you know, when we when I say advocacy right now, for us, most of the time, that pretty much means seeking any opportunity that we can to get out in front of organizations or individuals and and speak about these things. We are fortunate that we get called every now and then to participate in uh, education panels at different industry trade shows and to talk about these things. And uh, we do a little bit of writing. So if we have an opportunity in a magazine, I know it's getting harder and harder to find a good magazine and print out there, but we we look for opportunities to do that. And of course, your generous invitation to speak with you on this podcast is another way we try to get out there and advocate for this uh, segment of the golfing population. The hot thing we've got right now is GAIN. We've just launched GAIN, which is the Golf Access and Inclusion Network. And really what it is, is just a community platform. It's an open forum. It's a free platform. And what we are hoping to do is just create a central focal point for golfers, programs that support them, organizations that want to support these efforts, family or friends who have individuals that they know that they're trying to get information about how to get them started. We just want to create a place where anybody can come and ask a question. And so as we build this, and we're really excited about the first couple of weeks, we've just launched it. We're starting to see some really smart people sign up for this who are experts in their fields. And so we just see it as a great place to really just tie this whole adaptive community together somewhat. It's a free platform. Uh, the resources we have are available to anybody that logs in to get them. And certainly uh, we're looking for uh, more information just to help educate us all a little bit better. I've got a ton to 
people learn about this and I do it for a living. So every day I wake up and talk to somebody, something else new is coming up where I need to dig into things like that. So gain right now, we're very excited about that. And then again, with education, we're looking at uh, possibly down the road, if we can get some support doing an education platform or we can create some more sophisticated onboard training for owners and operators such that when the golf course staff shows up for the job or the customer service, the wait staff, or even the maintenance staff, they can take some education and that golf course can then really build a strong, endorsable, accessible platform to share with their community that they are all on board with making sure that anybody that wants to play golf is welcome to this facility. That's great. And, and it's only a week and a half old. So for everyone that's everyone that's listening, check out uh, the game section of the uh, National Alliance for Accessible Golf website. That's the Golf Access and Inclusion Network. Um, good luck with that, Dave. It sounds like uh, a great program. Um, well, we appreciate it. It also, it leads to something I'm interested in is that I think people really learn very effectively from the example of others. And while you may not be able to mention any courses specifically, can you maybe give us an example or talk to us, give us a story about how uh, uh, a course that you've observed or have worked with has taken those, those steps that are required to make the game more accessible for golfers with disabilities? Absolutely. I'll say that one of the challenges that I've seen related to that when we spoke at events to the range of different organizations, whether it's golf professionals or golf or superintendents, wherever it may be, there is, I think, a little bit in there. I, I hate to use the term fear, but it's more or less of a, a lack of total awareness about what this all means. For example, the ADA is related to public golf courses, pu public accommodations, and public entities, right? Technically speaking, private golf clubs do not have to comply with the ADA unless they are conducting themselves in a manner that is more akin to a public accommodation, like they have a lot of golf tournaments for funds, they have a lot of weddings as a revenue lane. And so we just work to educate owners and operators of, hey, here's the law, let us help you understand it. And then costs, I think a lot of golf courses uh, around the country are doing the right thing. They're making the effort to do things. But I think the biggest challenge is there is a, again, a, a concern that these updates to the golf course uh, may be cost prohibitive. But the reality is that you just got to take one step. You just got to get that ball rolling. The Department of Justice, to my knowledge, is not running around looking to make life miserable for golf course owners, but they want to see courses comply. And so I think the student owner and operator looks for things they can do just to get the ball rolling. And these things can be pretty simple. Uh, one of the resources we do offer that you mentioned is a ADA checklist that was created by the Americans, which was created by an ADA organization, but it's a, a guideline for golf course design. And it's a seven page checklist with big pictures. It's not very difficult to understand, and it's as simple as every green should have an entry and access point. If you've got X number of tee boxes on a hole, at least one, maybe two has to be accessible, but not all of them. And so we're, just, we're trying to show owners and operators that, of course, managers, you can get in this game pretty quickly without overthinking it too much. And then the other term that comes into play there is readily achievable. A single course operator who may not be as financially solvent as, say, a course that is managed or operated by a larger management company 
they're going to get a little more rope, quite honestly, on when they have to make changes when they are required to do so. Mm -hmm. Whereas, of course, with a large parent organization in, quite honestly, deeper pockets, their timeline to comply if they are digging up the dirt or making building modifications is a lot less. And so again, just informing owners and operators that there, there's a way to start moving in the right direction without fighting it, which I don't think many of them really fight it. They just want to understand it better is uh, really what we talk about the most. Yeah. Now, when we first met, and it was by total coincidence at, at Pinehurst during that first U.S. Adaptive Open, what are some of the things that they did to get ready for that? I, I have both in terms of physical and their and the mindset that they took towards being able to make that happen. Yeah, great question. They played it on Pinehurst number six both years. They're going to Kansas next year, but and Pinehurst number six is is there's no course at Pinehurst is not challenging. I think we know that. But give me the heat index today, by the way, is 106 here in Charleston, and it was like that last year in Pinehurst. And beyond the weather, that course does have hills and elevation changes. And more than you would think would have been an ideal choice for the first adaptive open. Obviously, the USGA did their due diligence and they did their first event. And then what they've done a fantastic job of is asking the golfers questions. And so they have connected with the golfers that have been competing, surveyed them, and, and, and taken some of that feedback. And for example, this year, some of the bunkers, or sand traps bunkers, you know, I'm getting trouble for saying one way or the other there, but are quite deep and quite honestly are unsafe for a seated golfer to get in. Also, uh, dangerous if there's too much slope for a golfer with a prosthetic leg or who's choosing to be on no prosthetic leg but using crutches. And so they looked around the course there and what they did, they said, hey, these bunkers here, we're just going to take those out of play for everybody, right? The field's going to be equitably dispersed. It doesn't matter what impairment category you're in, that bunker, don't worry about it. You're going to be able to play from it. No one's going to get more or less penalized than somebody else in the group. Same thing went for some of the uh, red penalty areas where normally you get two club links relief from that. Uh, if there was a high slope in those areas where a person with uh, two legs, but maybe a prosthetic arm would be able to stand within two club lengths or just outside it or within it, a seated golfer or someone with a prosthetic might not. So they added a two extra club lengths there to make a different rule for the event. So you can create accessible environments at your property, even if there are parts of your property that it may not be flat. Let's face it, there's very few golf courses in the world that are flat. And there's also very few courses in the world that are not going to have design features that involve some elevation and some sloping and some runoffs. And I can tell you, I've slipped down a hill before with shoes on and it's just because it was a, a steep hill. And I don't mind saying it. I don't want to do it again, but it's possible. So I think, again, looking for ways to be creative without this all-in approach, like I've got to do everything now is the fastest way to attract golfers to your property who are simply looking to be included in what's going on, socially speaking, golf-wise, family, friends at your facility. And the other piece of that, John, is uh, I can say this, I'm not 30 years old anymore, and uh, I'm in that category of an aging golfer, and I'm a member at a private club, a nice little club, but there's going to be a point where I age out. My ability to maneuver as much as I would like to is not going to be as good. It's not just children and 30-year-olds. And it's, we got to also remember that this baby boomer population who is aging out and are going to 
pick up disabilities still have plenty of golf left in their lives. And let's just say what it is. That's revenue for the golf club. And so I just think if you want to keep revenue coming to your golf club, look for ways to keep people playing at your club longer, as well as look for ways to get people that have never played there to show up. And if you can do those two things, I think you're going to have a pretty good run as a golf course operator. Man, that is great advice. And that reflects your knowledge and insight of kind of some of the challenges that operators have. I had a, one of the episodes where we'll have on the golf sustainability podcast is with the director of sustainability at Carnoustie Golf Links. And he was telling the story about how their forward tees were always referred to as the woman's tees and they were red. Older guys would have an issue around playing at those red tees because they didn't want to be recognized as playing from the red tees, the women's tees. They changed that marker on the tee box from red to green and they fought and they found far more many people using those forward tees who needed to use them. And you talk about aging out. I, I haven't played nearly enough golf to be thinking about that yet, but it is a reality. Coming. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was a great point. It, so if I'm an operator and, and I'm listening to this and I, and it makes sense and I want to try it, but maybe I don't have the awareness and the understanding of that community of golfers with disabilities, what, can I come to you for help? What are the first steps I should take to broaden my field division so I could start thinking about things? Yeah, absolutely. I love taking phone calls and I love taking email questions about this. So 100% uh, reach out to me directly because I, I pride myself on being responsive in a, in a timely fashion. Uh, also now with GAIN, they can log in, log on, create an account. It's free and, and just start start asking the questions as well. Plus we've got our resources on there. And there's a couple things that they can do to, I think, make themselves more comfortable in the beginning. And the key to that one is the uh, checklist I mentioned earlier. That's a, a guideline for golf courses. It's an ADA checklist and just do a self-assessment. Take a morning, go out there and just do a very objective self-assessment of your golf course as far as tee boxes if you've got paved cart paths, you're allowed to have curbs, but you have to have places for people that might be in a wheel device to get in and out of the cart path without going over a hump. So it's not rocket science, quite honestly. And I think that's what people have to understand. And depending on when your building was built and whether it's a public accommodation or a public entity, such as a municipal golf course or a government golf course, that determines your ADA compliance requirements. So know where you're at. But I think if you start with those, if they start with those things, they might surprise themselves that they're already maybe better off than they think they are. But I think that's the thing. So get that baseline of where you're at. Then you can look at, OK, what can we look at doing this year, maybe next year or in a more longer range strategic plan to really flip the script here? And I think, uh, again, that's what we do when we talk about education and advocacy is just helping inform these individuals that have the ability to make these changes at the golf course, what they need to do without saying, this is what you have to do. And if you don't do it, somebody's going to come get you. That's not our approach. And I think uh, that's the best way to get things done. That's great. Listen, you're trying to make it easy. And the three things that I just heard you say were one, join the Golf Access and Inclusion Network, which is GAIN, that's on the 
that's yes, on the yeah. website and I'm looking at your domain. I think it's accessgolf.org. Correct. Is the, is the URL. Second is get a hold of that checklist that you make available. And then third, email Dave Barton. And we'll put the URL for the website and your contact information in the show notes. Just for listeners that are interested, just go to the show notes and you'll see multiple ways to get started on your journey to make your course more accessible for golfers with, with disabilities. So Dave, I, I we, we've covered a lot of ground here. I'd like to wrap up by getting to know my, my guests on a more personal level. And as a result, allow our listeners to, to get sure. to know you better. I've got some non-golf related you know, questions that, that I'd like to talk, talk about. And the goal is not to try to make you cry here. Don't worry about that. I'm good. I'm good. I'm a little, but, concerned. I'm a little concerned now. Let's see where this goes. I like it. <laughs> So what drives you? You're very accomplished. You've had a great career in the military. You've got a career as a PGA professional, career helping support golf course operators. You've done a lot of good work with National Alliance for Accessible Golf. What drives you? What keeps you going? There's a high likelihood that I probably have some type A stuff in my DNA, number one, that served me pretty well in the military, but, and I've got a pretty active brain. I don't sit still very much. I probably drove my parents a lot crazier than I thought I did when I was younger, because I certainly saw that with some of my uh, two boys. And when I'm 63 and I do get asked this question a lot. And I don't know if that's just a normal thing that people ask individuals my age, but I go, when are you going to retire? You did, you did 22 years in the military. You can retire. Quite honestly, it's not that simple as most people know, but I just, I like to wake up and be motivated about what I'm doing, and I like to keep myself busy. Uh, I don't honestly even think of what retirement would mean to me because I, I think I'm always going to have to be engaged in something to, on some level just to keep my brain going in different areas. And I've, I've been fortunate enough, especially in the military, to just meet some great individuals. But in my golf career, one of my first experiences with a golf professional was when I transitioned out of the service. I went to Golf Academy of Americas down in Myrtle Beach. It's not there anymore, but it's a little 16-month program to get you up to speed on the golf industry. And I knew that had nothing to do with my PGA membership. There's no crossover between that and that school. But I, I wanted the industry indoctrination because I didn't want a golf course owner or manager thinking that when I was showing up to work, that I was showing up to be a starter and nothing against the folks that want to do that as volunteers later in their life. But I was going there for a second career <laughs> and Eric Wilson, a PGA master professional ran that school. He now runs the Kaiser university school of golf. He was a retired air force guy, just his daily motivation and how passionate he was really inspiring the, the day I got in the golf business. So he's on a short list of folks that really convinced me I was making the right decision because I can assure you that about 80 to 90 percent of my friends retiring from the service don't make these kind of decisions. Uh, defense consulting is up there in the DC area. It's an opportunity and there might be that day here or there I might go maybe I should have done that <laughs> but, but no I like being motivated. My wife is a physical therapist and she's been very supportive of my desire to find a way to make this a career. And then most recently, my job at the NGCOA was just a fantastic experience. I didn't know anything about really the way the associations interacted with each other and how that all worked. And Jay Karen, who's the CEO of the Owner Association, is a fantastic leader. And he does some amazing 
interesting things at the NGCOA. And uh, so I see him as a, a great role model. And then uh, I'd probably name one more person there and just not because who he's about to be. But uh, we did a lot of work with Don Ray, uh, who is will be the incoming president of the PGA in the not too distant future, uh, vice president now. But Don and his passion, he's a course owner. Uh, place out in Arizona and his energy to try to drive the PGA in a newer direction that's more supportive of the demographic in the membership now and where that demographic it should be is is pretty good so those are my who I look up to folks that go this is a pretty good place to be as far as the line of work goes yeah. man you are clearly driven and that's you, you can feel it coming through and and you've had some great people to inspire you. I've not had the chance to meet Jay or Don as, as of yet, but I look forward to. And I've heard numerous things about the Kaiser School of Golf, and I look forward to also learning more about uh, about what they're doing. Look, it's obviously everyone has bumps in the road along the way and challenges that they have to overcome. You've clearly addressed successfully the kind of challenges you've encountered along the way. What would you describe as the greatest challenge that you've had to overcome, Dave? Challenge on a personal level? Yeah, per personal, whatever comes to mind. Sure. This is an easy one. I was an ensign in the Navy and uh, I was playing a lunchtime authorized intramural sports game, softball. And I was about ready to make my first deployment with my unit uh, over to the Arabian Gulf and I was playing left field. And the last thing I heard was plenty of room and I went full speed into a chain link fence, pretty significant head injury, which probably explains a lot to you now, knowing me as a little bit better as you do. But the moral of that beyond a, let's just say significant head injury was that I was grounded from being a pilot uh, and I was told I'd be grounded for a year. Now I'd been a prior enlisted guy. And so being a pilot was getting to me like, Hey, I'm achieving those goals. And so I got put in a box for a year, uh, not knowing if I was going to be able to stay in the Navy or not. And then after a year, I went back for a reeval and they said, it's going to be another year. So I got grounded for two years. But the moral of that story is when you talk about people, it was absolutely very hard to stay motivated. But I also was like, don't know what else I'm going to do. At that time, I started thinking about golf, quite honestly. I started thinking about the golf industry and that's a true story yeah but i had an amazing uh, commanding officer an executive officer who without a doubt went above and beyond what would be normal to to help me stay in the navy and to get me through the process to do that uh, after i recovered and i did and i flew for the rest of my career and there were never any issues and so again the moral of that story is i was surrounded by good people you know, at a time where I needed to be surrounded by good people. And that is why I've had a, in my own personal view, I feel like I've had a successful life and whose view is more important than your own. And so I think that's what we're trying to do in the adaptive community for these golfers, some of whom who do not know they want to play golf right now or do not know the value of golf is we're trying to provide information to them that shows them what's possible, where, or they may not think it is. And so that's my personal story, I'd say. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's inspiring and it's powerful. That had to talk about a wake up call that had to be fearful after that injury, but you, yep. you persevered. And as the good Lord often does, they put people in your path when you need them and the right person. 
And it is certainly, it's certainly all worked out. And I think the, the work that you're doing is inspiring. Your history and accomplishments are inspiring. And I appreciate you, Dave Barton. And thank you so much for being on the Golf Sustainability Podcast today with me. I appreciate it. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, John. I, it's 1920, excuse me, 2023. This catch was in 1988 and I did catch the ball and it does remain the greatest catch in the history of Naval Air Station, North Island. Okay. And, but it's been a pleasure meeting you and getting to know you. And I'm looking forward to working with you here on some of these issues with you, wherever we can fit in that. And our organization always values the opportunity to talk about what we do. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Listen, we're going to support you and we want to try to get as many people as possible leveraging your resources. And I was going to ask if you made the catch or not, but I just didn't have the heart. So thank you for, thank you for closing with that, Dave. A terrible story if I didn't catch it. It's a terrible story. <laughs> To our listeners, thanks very much for being with us today on the Golf Sustainability Podcast for what was a very engaging and uh, enlightening conversation with Dave Barton, the Executive Director for the National Alliance uh, for Sustainable Golf. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe uh, to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're also active on social media. Tune in to what we're doing on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast. So long and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast. Take action on the ideas inspired by this episode. You can find out more about golf sustainability in the show notes for each podcast episode and following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player, and we'll see you soon on another episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast.